All right, it's tax season, everybody. Everyone's favorite time of the year. Cue the music. It's the most wonderful time. Well, maybe, maybe not. It really depends on whether you're getting a big fat tax refund or do you owe money to the IRS. So today we're gonna to focus a little bit on real estate and some of the positive tax implications that real estate can have for people. Now, you've heard of the term tax deduction. When you take a tax deduction, you might be able to either increase the amount of that giant refund that you're gonna get or you may be able to decrease your overall tax liability. Now, just a little bit of a side note, on this. So I was thinking about the tax code and no one asked me my opinion, of course, and probably if you're in the audience, no one's asking your opinion about the tax code either. But when you think about who makes the tax code, the tax code is written by influential, powerful people, usually that have wealth or they have money. And at the end of the day on it, people that have wealth own real estate. And real estate statistically is one of the top holdings, if not the top holding, that these wealthy people have. So when you look at the long-term tax codes, the odds of them changing over the course of time probably, in my opinion, aren't that high because wealthy people are the influential people. So with that being said, we really wanted to bring in an expert today to talk about taxes. Dennis Kilfeather, welcome to the show. Greg, thanks for having me. Hey, Dennis, can you explain to everyone what is a tax deduction because we hear that term thrown around when you're 15 years old you're, you hear tax deduction but what does it really mean tax deduction are two ways you've got your pre-tax deductions when you're working let's say you're a w-2 earner and then you have your post-tax deductions so the pre-tax deductions are the ones that if you're a w-2 earner that's really your biggest bang for the buck you know as a w-2 employee you don't have a lot of silver bullets that you can save tax money on so the IRS has allowed Section 401k, which everybody's heard, their 401k. That's probably your biggest and kind of your biggest muscle for when you get a tax deduction mm -hmm. as somebody who is receiving a wage. So let's say you earn $100,000 a year and you're maxing out your 401k. Let's say you're putting $20,000 into your 401k just under the max. That means your taxable income is going to be the 100 minus the 20. So your taxable income is going to start, your gross income is going to start at $80,000. So that's an example of a pre-tax deduction. So you're forgoing paying taxes on that $20,000 in that example, both on the federal level and on the state level. You got it. And let's say that they're paying the 20% tax bracket, that they're going to save 20% on that $20,000 they put away. So that's your biggest bang for your buck for your W-2 earner on how to save tax money and kind of defining what the pre-tax deduction is. I want to come back a little bit later about 401ks and IRAs and talk about those in a little more detail. When we look at primary residence, so I'm a homeowner, mm -hmm. how does that benefit me from a tax standpoint? So great question. So the tax deduction from a home ownership standpoint happens in two different ways. Uh, primarily, people are able to deduct their real estate taxes. The Tax Cuts and Job Act, which passed several years ago, caps your real estate tax deductions and your local tax deductions, which is called SALT, state and local taxes. It caps it at $10,000. So in the lovely state of New York, lovely state of New Jersey, real estate taxes are going to be really high. So you're probably going to cap out at $10,000, but that's your first deduction as a homeowner is your real estate taxes. In Jersey, that'll almost always bring you up to $10,000. 
The second Straight deduction. Straight to be in Jersey. Absolutely. Beautiful. It's the Garden State. <laughs> um, the next deduction you get is your mortgage interest. Your mortgage interest comes off as an itemized deduction along with that $10,000 salt cap, and your interest that you're paying on your primary residence is a large after-tax deduction. So in that example we went through before, that person's salary is now $80,000. They're going to take the $10,000 real estate tax, which is capped at 10. And let's say they paid another $15,000 in mortgage interest. That's now going to come off as well. You know, that's one of the unhung, unsung heroes of the high interest rate environment. If you purchased a home in 2023, you paid a much higher interest rate than you did in years past. But at least you're getting a higher tax deduction as well. You are getting a higher tax deduction. And I think a lot, there's been a lot of confusion on, in my opinion, from a tax perspective, clients call all the time. I want to purchase a home. I, I don't want to purchase a home. I want to continue to rent. I want to buy a rental property. I understand interest rates have gone up substantially over the last five years, but historically speaking, not to age myself out, you know, right now, where are we looking at the 30 years? 30 years been hovering right around between six and a half and seven yeah, percent for an extended period of time. I hear clients all the time call me, oh, I'm never going to buy a rental property with interest rates at six and a half and seven. And in the grand reality of things, you're deducting a portion of that on your interest. So your after-tax realized interest rate is probably five and a half, maybe six percent because you're getting a deduction for the interest you're paying. And also in a time value of money over the grand scheme of things, if you look at the borrowing rates, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, we had such a deal where we were borrowing money at such a low rate for a decade or more. Six and a half, seven percent is really not that expensive money, in my opinion, from a tax perspective. Statistically, 50-year average since the 70s, it's averaged 7.75%. So we're still under the average. average. So we're still under the yeah. average. You see some fluctuations. You know, it jumps up, it comes down. We'll see what the whole year of 2024 brings yeah. for, for all of us. So I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, there was something when I did my taxes that could be a standard deduction that you could take, or you could itemize different things. And because interest rates were so low, it was harder to itemize and get over what that standard deduction could be. Absolutely. If that makes sense? It does, because interest rates went down so low. Um, most clients that we're working with, you're, you know, your you're W-2, husband and wife earning earning a salary, most of them, I'd say 80%, maybe a little bit more, went from taking an itemized deduction when interest rates were higher to taking the standard deduction now. So in that example that I gave you, you know, you're capped at $10,000 in your real estate taxes. Let's say that your mortgage interest that you paid in 2023 is 20,000. Now you're gonna be at $30,000. That's going to be large enough that you're going to exceed the standard deduction. So now you're actually going to get the tax benefit of the mortgage interest that you're writing off. Well, that's good news. I mean, there's some sort of silver lining. We're really trying to draw a silver lining. We all like rates a little bit lower, but at least you get to deduct all that interest. And you see it on the home equity lines as well, because on the home equity lines, you can deduct that interest up to a certain level. And interest rates on home equity lines with all the Fed adjustments in 2023, you're like 10% right now. That's a lot. It seems like, again, it seems like it's a lot. But let's say you're putting windows on your house. And this is a question I get all the time. Hey, Dan, I want to put solar panels or I want to put a geothermal heating system in. Um, if they're closer to, you know, I'd say the closer they are to, to Jersey as opposed to Pennsylvania, where about half of my clients are, a lot of solar panels. And yeah, they're going to take a home equity loan on the money to borrow to put the, the solar array on the roof. But if you're borrowing 50 grand at 10%, we're also getting a tax credit at 30% to put that bad boy on as well as writing off the interest. Again, like we said in your itemized deductions, your net realized interest rate on a scenario like that could be as low as 3% if you take a look at all the tax credits on the deductions. So again, 10% seems really high, but that's why you know, we always say, have, you know, give us a call, 
talk to your tax advisor and see what's going on because what might seem like a really high interest rate, when you flatten that thing out over time and really look at what you're doing to get the economic benefit out, might not be that high. No, that's great perspective on it. Now, there is a limit, though, for mortgage interest that you can deduct. It's loan amounts up to $750,000, correct? Up to seven hundred and fifty. Again, I think it was the Tax Cuts and Job Act that was up to $1.1 million, brought it down to $750. And it's $750 that combines your first mortgage and any home equity lines. How about second homes or vacation homes? Uh, second homes and vacation homes will now be treated as personal interest, so they would not be deductible as primary resident interest on your taxes. Technically speaking, depending on if it's an investment property or not, if it's a rental property, there is no cap. A lot of people think that, oh, I own a home, my mortgage is seven hundred grand. I want to buy a house, I want an Airbnb, I can't take a mortgage on it, I'm not going to be able to take the deduction. Common misnomer, I guess, about the way that that information originally came out with these tax changes is, there is no cap if this is a rental real estate property for you. I, I want to go back to the vacation home and second home. So that's treated as personal interest? If it's your second home, it'll be treated as personal interest. So. It's not going to be deductible if your indebtedness is over $750,000. Understood. So if I have a $100,000 mortgage on my primary residence and a $600,000 mortgage on my second home, I can still take the deduction because I haven't exceeded that $750,000. Fully deductible, 100%. Understood. So, and you had mentioned investment properties as well. Now, this is an area, I'm with the investment properties, kind of with the prelude of everything or prelude with everything, this is where wealthy people have a lot of investment properties, commercial and residential. So when you look at that, that's a big benefit from a tax standpoint. Would you agree? It or is, can be? but it also depends. So when you're, when you're earning wages, you know, as a United States citizen paying taxes here, if you're earning a W-2, there's going to be an amount that's going to be capped or completely limited on real estate losses. So that's kind of a you know, common misunderstanding is, hey, you know, I'm earning $400,000 at my, my, my job. I'm going to pick up a rental property in a strip mall in the area. It's going to be great. I'm going to have depreciation on it. I'm going to have interest real estate taxes. I'm going to take a loss of $300,000 a year on this thing. Can you deduct that against your $400,000 wages? Most likely not because you're not a real estate professional. So there's this IRS designation status of you know an investor, a real estate investor, and a real estate professional. And there's a pretty big brick wall in between those factors that you have to meet. So if you had your real estate license, in that scenario, does a certain amount of your time have to be dedicated to production in real estate to take the full deduction? Yeah, the IRS tax code completely defines what a real estate professional is. It has to do with the amount of time you're spending and how, how much time you're spending doing anything else. But if you're a realtor, you basically have you know the biggest muscles to do what you want if that's your primary source of income. And again, if you're married, and let's say it's a husband and wife, and the husband is, you know, and an engineer working at a local at a local engineering firm and the wife is selling real estate full-time when one spouse meets the real estate professional designation now both spouses do and on the married filing tax return so let's just hypothetically kind of go down this road husband's making four hundred thousand dollars the wife is you know selling real estate doesn't matter if it's residential or commercial and they pick up a couple real estate properties she meets the definition of a real estate professional for tax purposes so any deductions they have that exceed their income on those rental properties, including interest, including depreciation, and real estate taxes, will reduce the husband's salary that he's getting in that example I gave you from his engineering firm. That's a great nugget of information. And really, people get, you should get your real estate license. 
and you should work in that field if you're going to have investment properties. It probably behooves you to have your real estate license. It absolutely does. You know, the IRS publishes what the real estate uh, professional designation is. If you go to the irs.gov or you just go to Google, you put that in. It's really nice and easy. There's an hours test, whether it be somewhere between 500 and 750 hours designation of what you're doing, and it completely dials it in. And in my opinion, reading tax code for a living, that's the way the IRS did that publication, it's nice and easy to read. It's really clear. Uh, that's great. We'll try and get the link out to people so you, so you understand where you could go to, to read through that. Now, when you look at capital improvements that are made to properties, if it's your primary home or a second home, is any of that deductible? If I'm going to go put in a new kitchen, it's a $50,000 kitchen, can I deduct any of that? On your primary home? Yeah. Absolutely not. None of it's going to be deductible. If it's your second home and you decide you want to do a beautiful bath and you want to put a sauna in there with a hot tub, none of that's going to be deductible either. Investment property. If it's an investment property and you're Airbnb in that thing and it's up in the Finger Lake region and people are going up there and you decide I'm going to redo the kitchen, redo the bathroom, going to put a sauna in and a hot tub, that stuff's all going to be deductible because it's a business venture and it's an investment property yielding you know, rental income. So we'll be able to take that depreciation and those capital expenses against that rental income each year some we can you know, accelerate, and some we have to take over 5, 7, 15, or in sometimes 39 years, depending on what the IRS tells you, how long that asset is going to live. You see, that's, that's again, that's a great nugget of information, and people need to understand, especially when you look at investment properties. So on the mortgage standpoint, interest rates are going to be higher on investment properties than they're going to be for a primary residence. However, you do not get the benefits of things that, that you're talking about right now. I mean, you can, if you do capital improvements to it, you can deduct that money, potentially deduct that money mm -hmm. on an investment property where you can't do it on a primary residence. You had mentioned depreciation. Sure. So depreciation is, I, I, my understanding is you can do it in a lot of different fashions, but you're the expert. How do you depreciate an investment property? So, so I love talking about depreciation. Um, I usually talk about it in two different ways, and it used to be, it's not really the case now. You go buy, you know, a beautiful brand new, you know, GMC, Denali, Sierra, things completely knocked out, spend 95 grand on it, you drive it off the lot, you can't sell that pickup truck that you just bought for 95,000 for 80 grand. So you lost value in your car. That, that's a financial depreciation. I'm talking about accounting depreciation here. So there's a lot of you know, under, misunderstanding on what depreciation is. So you've kind of got, you buy an asset that's now worth less than what you could sell it for. That car has depreciated in value. From an accounting standpoint and taxes, the IRS tells you what type of asset you can write off or depreciate over how many years. So in that same example, a pickup truck using for a, a general contractor, let's say it's a $100,000 purchase for the pickup truck, it's got modifications on it, that's going to be a five-year asset. So we're going to be taking $20,000 a year in depreciation over the life of that asset. And the IRS tells us in these IRS publications how long an asset's going to live. Can you depreciate that asset, 100% of that asset, over the course of time? You absolutely can. When you buy an investment property, if it's a residential rental, it's 27 and a half years. If it's a commercial property, it's 39 years. Land, you cannot depreciate. So when you purchase, let's say you purchase property for $700,000, um, when they had the valuation done, when the mortgage was being done, land was valued at $200,000. The remaining five hundred, right, if we're talking about a $700,000 asset and it's a, it's a residential property, we would take that $500,000 now and divide it over 27 and a half years. And, and that's, that's standard, so it has to be 27 and a half, you cannot depreciate it any quicker? You can depreciate it quicker if you have a depreciation study done. 
So you can hire a third-party engineering firm, which is not your local tax preparer like we are. They can come out, they do an engineering walkthrough and a thorough study, and they can actually take the asset in the house that you buy, and they can say, all right, this portion is, meets the seven-year test. It's wiring, it's drop ceiling, it's a little bit of furniture, it's fixtures. Furniture and fixtures are gonna be depreciable over seven years, and the hard real estate, the, the, the asset itself, you know, you're talking about the brick and mortar and the sticks, uh, the two by fours, that stuff's all gonna be 27 and a half years. See, that seems like it would make a lot of sense if you knew you weren't gonna carry the property for longer than a period of time. Absolutely. It's worth paying the money, come out, do that forensic, depreciation look at it absolutely depreciation you're gonna sell it anyway yep and if you're a real estate professional right and you accelerate a lot of that depreciation let's say it's a new build and there's a fair amount of newer assets in there that are you know you have you know hot tubs you have saunas these things bump up the price of the house so those aren't 27 and a half years they may be five and ten year assets and they may be subject to bonus depreciation which you can actually take in first year so there's a portion of that reserve study that you have done on the depreciation on your way in that can actually accelerate a fair amount in year one through what's called bonus depreciation. That's great news. And you, you know, when you're looking to purchase investment properties, you really need to talk to a tax preparer ahead of time so you understand all the details behind it. When does it make sense, Dennis, to put the property into an LLC? Listen, when you're opening up an investment property, you're going to have a series of potential litigation that's gonna open up. So you're gonna have you know, claim risk, I would call it. You really need to talk to your insurance professional and your attorney. I'm gonna be the last person that's really gonna weigh in on that. So when you're setting up these LLCs, the issue is to protect yourself from a liability perspective, right? Limited liability. The best way to do that is to gauge your attorney, talk to your insurance provider, and see if it does make sense to put it inside of an LLC. Sometimes people get investment properties and then they purchase it personally and they wanna put it into an LLC. And sometimes mortgages are non-transferable. And if they do that, it can create a calling of the loan. It can put you in, I guess, de facto default. So getting an attorney involved with your insurance professional early on is something I highly recommend before you say, all right, I'm gonna put this into an LLC. That's a great point. If anyone is looking to take a property that's an investment property and put it into an LLC, you really need to call your mortgage servicer to understand, are you allowed to do it? Because to your point, Dennis, your note's technically callable if you transfer it over to the LLC. Absolutely, and a lot of the a lot of liability protection you can you can grab, but you know purchase essentially by doing either you know you can do an umbrella mortgage protect you know an umbrella insurance protection or increasing your general insurance to make sure you have that protection right. As we're talking about protecting your assets, you can do that by legal structure as well as doing an insurance policy. Now, if you own a hundred percent of the LLC. Does it make any difference then whether or not the property, with the exception of the liability component on it, okay, if I'm 100% owner of the LLC, that's going to transfer right over to my personal returns. If I'm a W-2 employee, do I hit a threshold anyway? Uh, so again, if you're not a real estate professional and you're a W-2 earner, if you have a single member LLC, it's actually called a disregarded entity for tax purposes, and it does not file any additional tax filing. It just files a Schedule E with your tax return in this example as a real estate project. Thanks for the information, Dennis. It's fantastic. We're going to come back. We're going to take a quick break. We'll see you in two minutes. So Dennis, when we're looking at W-2 employees, you have your mortgage interest, you have your 401k, your IRA, certain things that you can use take as a tax deduction, what else can you really take? As a W-2 earner, there's really not much left, right? Your biggest bang for your buck, as I indicated, is your 401k. 
If you're covered by an employer-sponsored plan, your 401k, and you're maxing that thing all the way out, you're not going to be able to do a deductible IRA. It's going to have to be a non-deductible IRA if you choose to. So as a W-2 earner, really the best thing you can do is all of your pre-tax defense items, I call it. Your 401k, Section 125 medical, uh, pre-tax health savings accounts, and anything else your employer may provide on a pre-tax standpoint. And now when you're self-employed, you have a lot more flexibility with what you can deduct, correct? Self-employed persons kind of have it under the sun. They can grab absolutely anything they want as long as it has a specified business purpose. Like we're sitting here in your studio, um, for you, you know, this table, these chairs, I deducted e that plant. even this rug, this beautiful plant here, these would all qualify for Section 179 or bonus depreciation in the year you get it. So again, we talked about depreciation before. You know, furniture is a seven-year asset, but it also qualifies for bonus, so we could take it all in year one. Great. All right, so you have a lot more flexibility self-employed. So when we look at it from a lending standpoint, so if someone's looking to apply for a mortgage, some of the issues they can run into is if you're self-employed, you may not show enough income, net income, to qualify for a mortgage. So you have to look at some different alternative products that may come with higher interest rates. One of the benefits of being a W-2 employee is you qualify right on the gross income. So you may not be able to deduct, it, deduct anything, but you could potentially get a better interest rate than someone who can't show the income looking for a mortgage. So there are some advantages both ways. There are some advantages, and you probably run into this more when you're taking a look at a, a client who's putting in a loan application. If they're self-employed, let's say they're a single member LLC, and you're looking at their business expenses, often you'll see if they're self-preparing or they're working with a tax professional that's not really kind of looking at things three-dimensionally, right? They're just trying to pump out a tax return. That's not what I'm doing. So when I'm looking at something, you know, if I'm looking at somebody's tax return from last year, you might see supplies, $45,000. From your perspective, unless that's on the depreciation line, it's probably not an item you can add back for cash flow. So working with your tax professional and identifying what is a depreciable asset versus what is a general expense can affect your debt service coverage ratios when you're trying to qualify them for a loan. So understanding what is depreciable and what is not and a direct write-off can be really critical when it comes to qualifying for these loans. That explanation really speaks to why people need to speak with you upfront because it's really a relationship. It's a relationship when you're doing your taxes and understanding all the moving parts and why they have to speak to guys like me. Everything's relationship-oriented and understanding and the knowledge really impacts your bottom line. Absolutely. And to go to that point, self-employed people, I always say you got to talk to me quarterly. And if you're W-2 earners, you see me as much as you see your dentist. Nobody likes seeing their dentist. They want to see their tax guy less. You see your dentist, what, two, maybe three times a year, usually two every six months for your checkup. That should be a reminder to also call the other guy. I want to go back again to this 401k and this IRA because when you can deduct it, you can take the money right off of your gross income. And you can do that whether or not you're a W-2 employee. If you're self-employed, it could be a SEP IRA, different type of IRA. It could be a SEP IRA, and you can deduct up to 25% of your income on a SEP IRA. Often overlooked is if you're self-employed, you could probably set up a solo 401k. Um, you know, Sometimes you'll refer to them as Unik, solo Ks. On a solo 401k, you could put a you could put a, you could put away a lot more because you can max out the employee portion, the employer portion, and then you can also do what's called a, a cash balance defined benefit contribution. So it's very possible that you could be putting away you know in excess of sixty seventy thousand dollars, in you know when you're capped as a W two earner, the maximum you could put in is say twenty three thousand dollars a year as a self employed person because you could do the employee, the employer, a profit sharing and a defined benefit contribution, you could sock away a, to a ton of money. And just reduce the overall tax liability significantly. Absolutely. And then that money grows tax deferred and then when you take it out, 
that's what you pay the tax on it down the line. I want to go just a little bit deeper on that for everybody. So when you look at qualified retirement programs, and that's what Dennis and I are talking about, there's multi-level reasons why you should do it financially. One's the potential tax deductibility or all the tax de deductibility of the money. In addition to that, you have tax-free growth on that money. And a lot of people don't really understand what that means over the course of time. So I'm going to show you an example really quickly. I'm going to pull this out. This is a financial mode calculator. But I want to show everybody what it looks like when you're saving money in a qualified retirement program. I'm going to give you a quick example. So let's just say that you're saving $500 a month, and you're saving that for 20 years. That's 240 months, and you're earning an interest rate of about 8% over the course of time. You would have acquired, at the end of that course of time, about $294,000 at $500 a month. Okay, well, how much money did you invest into that? So if we invested the $500 a month times 240 months, that's $120,000. You put $120,000 into it, tax deferred, to Dennis's point, and you would have accumulated 294000 which means you would have earned a gain on that of about $174,000. Compounding interest is like the eighth wonder of the world. So if you're not taking advantages of things like this, you need to talk to Dennis, you need to talk to me, so you can be led down the right path of assistance to make sure you're getting every advantage that you can financially and from a tax standpoint. Absolutely, and when, when you're talking about you know, if you're self-employed and you're designing your solo 401k or your retirement accounts, there are so many layers and, and areas you could benefit from. So working with a financial advisor that may or may not have a relationship with an actuarial team that can do analysis on your age and your earnings to get more put away, there's a huge benefit in having these relationships. And you know, people self-prepare their tax returns, often are the same people who are using an online brokerage account for their SEP. They're kind of missing out on the ability to kind of look at things three-dimensionally, right, from the outside and go, all right, how can we save you both tax money and long-term growth over a 20-year period before you're in that retirement zone? I always go back to the wealthy. And no wealthy people are managing their own money, doing their own taxes. They're not doing any of that. It's your money. You want to be able to leverage it to the best of your ability. So you got to call Dennis, call myself. Make sure that you're doing the right things, or at least you have the information to make the best decisions for you and your potential family, significant others, whomever. So, Dennis, give us a nugget for everyone out in the audience. So, coming into tax season, when I'm meeting with my clients, a common area of confusion is taxpayers often think they can deduct 100% of their student loan interest. And student loan interest is kind of finicky. If you're earning over a threshold, you can't deduct any. And if you're earning underneath that threshold, the maximum you can deduct is $2,500. And as your income changes year to year, sometimes you may be able to deduct the full $2,500, sometimes you may be able to deduct zero. So often people come in and go, I gave you all my deductions, why am I not seeing it? That might be a reason why. It's in the tax return. And it can change. It can change right? year to year. It can change year, year to year, so you make sure that they're talking to their trusted advisor to kind of go through all this information. Thanks so much for spending the time with us today, No problem. Today, it's great Dennis. to be here. Thanks very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure, pleasure to see you. And I hope that everyone out there picked up a couple of valuable pieces of information today, talking about interest deductions, property tax deductions for real estate that you live in, potential tax deductions for investment properties that you own in all the different 
types of benefits that you can have from owning investment properties, knowing about student loans and what you can and can't do, looking at time value of money. We really appreciate it. We hope you got a lot of value out of this, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next week. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.